Let's look at Luke chapter 1 and get into the word. All right, we're going to start in verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. That's what we're going to look at uh, today. We'll get into the other passage uh, passages and verses next week and the weeks following. But I want you to notice something here with uh, Luke in chapter 1. He's not going to start with Jesus' baptism. Many see that as the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's not even going to start with Jesus' birth. That actually doesn't come for many, many, many verses later. And uh, Luke's doing that because God is speaking through Luke and God wants us to see something. That the story of Jesus doesn't begin with his public ministry. The story of Jesus doesn't even begin with his birth. The story of Jesus began long before that. And the story about Jesus is the story of God's redemptive plan for the world. And if we're not careful, we can end up like, we can even end up chopping up the Christmas story a little bit. And then we got, you know, the, the wise men over here, and then Mary, and the virgin birth, and then Elizabeth, and it's all kind of just like its own little thing, but we need to see it conjoined together. We need to see it woven together, but not just the Christmas story. Is the Christmas story doesn't just start in Luke 1 or Matthew 1. I mean, the Christmas story really begins way back in Genesis. Okay? Turn uh, real quick. Keep your place in, in Luke because we're going to be referring back to that quite a bit. But I want you to see this in Genesis chapter 3. So in Genesis 3, there's the fall. And this is what God says to the serpent starting in verse 14 as part of his curse. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So in that in verse 15, <clears throat> there's enmity, and there always has been, and there always will be, between us and Satan and his <clears throat> evil demons. But notice that it says at the end, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise 
his heel. This is what um, a lot of theologians refer to as the proto-evangelion, or what we might say the first telling or the first glimpse of the gospel. So all the way back in Genesis, here, I mean, they had just sinned for the very first time before God and messed it up for all of us, Adam being our representative. It's kind of like when the president uh, of a nation decides to go to war. I mean, you personally might not be in favor of that war. You personally might not think that the nation should be going to war. But the president speaks. He makes the decision. He's the representative of the nation, so to speak. Well, Adam was our representative. The scripture is clear. Read Romans 5 and other passages. He's a representative. He did a horrible job representing us. He did a horrible job protecting his wife. He failed. But immediately, God had already set in plan a redemption for his people. So, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, who's the he shall bruise your head? That is Jesus, who will be sent. All right? Is Satan going to take it? Take a little shot at Jesus? Yep. Does he think he wins? Yep. Ends up getting him crucified on a cross. Um, I don't know about you, but if, if you want, if you give me option between uh, something bad happening to my head or my heel, I'm going to take my heel, right? So the heel, not that big of a deal. The head, okay, it's, it's going to be a big deal. And as we see, it's a crushing blow, right? Um, so much so, and I know I've mentioned this before, but this is the, they, they, they pick up Adam and Eve on this promise. And if you look over, this is just a side note, but I think it's really cool. Um, Genesis 4, chapter 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Um, it's interesting. A lot of versions translate it that way. Um, but that word uh, with is actually not really there in the Hebrew. Um, you could actually translate it, I have gotten a man, the Lord. And I actually think that Adam and Eve believed the promise of God and believed that, I mean, it says, um, I will put in the, between you and the woman. They already were experiencing that. And between your offspring and her offspring. But then they're thinking, okay, offspring. And then Eve has her first baby. And she's thinking, this is going to be the one that takes care of the serpent. And she knew <clears throat> that that would have to be none other than the Lord himself to be able to do that. So they were trusting the Lord. I mean, think of that faith, right? They were trusting the Lord from the very beginning, that he had a plan. They saw it, and it took time for that to unfold the way the Lord wanted to unfold it. Um, as part of the continuing story, you know, my point is this. Before the Father sent the Son, Jesus, he sent jo- John. John's the forerunner. But this story goes back way before Luke, way before John, all the way back to Genesis. And I want us to see, as we look at the Bible, it's really called like biblical theology. Um, That's actually a particular type of theology that you can study. It's like, what is the interwoven message of Scripture that you see going 
throughout from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So we're kind of zooming in on redemptive history, kind of coming in a few thousand years later, zooming in on what Luke has for us with John. Okay? That's when it's almost like things really start to pick up because then you have John, then you have Jesus. He's got about 30 years uh, of his um, earthly life, right? And then there's the death, the resurrection. It really picks up with the New Testament. But all along, God was working his truth in his ways. Let's look at uh, verse 8 and 9 for a second back in Luke. Did you guys hold your place? Okay. So it says, While he's serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now there was 24 divisions of priests who alternated performing their duties. Basically one week they would perform um, two different times each year, so two weeks total uh, out of the roughly 50 weeks in the Jewish calendar. Now, Zechariah, if you, you can actually figure this out, um, Zechariah is serving in the afternoon uh, at the public offering called the Tamid. That took place twice a day, but he's doing it in the afternoon when the incense is going to be offered. Now, these various tasks for the sacrifices, they were assigned by Lot. What's just Lot? I mean, it's kind of like you know picking a name out of a hat, essentially. Why, why did they do that? It was done so that, you know, there wouldn't be any favoritism. I'm, cer- I'm sure certain of the jobs uh, weren't as pleasant to do um, as other jobs. So it was done by lot so that um, no person was showing favoritism to any other person. Um, here's the thing. Everyone thought that it was a random process, right? But here, the Lord is clearly behind it. And I think sometimes we forget that God is in control. All right? We need, to, we need to remember that God is in control. So whatever we're dealing with, whatever is going on, remind yourself, God is in control. And sometimes we're like, oh, what are we going to do? Or how is this going to get handled? Like, God has it. He's got it. He knows what he's going to do. He's in control. We've got to trust him. Now, friends, <clears throat> God wanted Zechariah in the temple for this divine message to be delivered. Okay, he made it happen. If God wants something to happen, can he make it happen? Yes. So Zechariah has this, like, it's literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be in charge of the incense portion. I, I was listening to uh, another preacher, and, and I think he said something like, it's like it was like a 1 in you know, 30,000 or 1 in 50,000 chance. Like, it, this wasn't going to happen again. And he's like, oh, this is my fifth time getting to do this. No. This was his one time, and, and he wasn't ever going to even get to do it again, and some people never got to do it. So um, this afternoon sacrifice, the very last thing that they would do would be to offer the incense. There'd be the priest, in this case Zechariah. He'd have two assistants with him. They'd carry the burning coals uh, from the great altar into the chamber of the holy place to burn this incense on the altar of incense. Now, you guys remember the altar of incense? It's actually made out of wood, but it's gold-plated. Okay, it's got gold on it. Um, it's located in the center of the room, right before the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. Once they do that and they got everything set up, and right before the incense is offered, those two assistants would withdraw uh, from the sanctuary and just leave the priest by himself. So that's, that's kind of the, the picture that you should have. So they've, they've just kind of walked out, and he's got the incense, and he's there at the altar, 
And now he's starting to burn that incense before the Lord, and then this angel, um, and he's praying, and this angel appears. Now, I want to make a couple points. One, you know, I just made, remember God is in control. Two, we need to trust the Lord um, and all his dealings with us. Okay, God works the way he wants to work. We might not think he should work that way. We might not like the way he works that way, um, but it's a trust issue for us. We've got to trust that the Lord is working the way he wants to, the way that glorifies him, and the way, as Romans 8.28 says, right, God works all things for the good of those who love him. He's working it all together for good. So look back at verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Why is verse 6 there? Why, why do they need to tell us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous? What's it doing in the story? Well, it's letting us know how they lived their lives, and it's letting us know an important piece of information that we need to know. Um, Luke wants to establish uh, who these people are. So they're priests. Elizabeth is also from the line of Aaron. They're married, and they're righteous and blameless before God. Why is that important? Because in the very next verse, we find something out that um, is, is going to kind of shake things up. Look at verse 7. <clears throat> but they had no child. Now, <clears throat> barrenness back then was seen as God's judgment. It was almost like a curse. Um, it was like physical deformity or disability. It was like God's judgment. That view is incorrect. It's not a correct view, but that's what people thought back then. So Elizabeth, being barren, would have felt, would have felt judged by her peers. Uh, look at John chapter 9. Verse 1, it says, As he passed by, it's talking about Jesus here, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So even the disciples themselves had this incorrect view that God had punished this blind man because of either his own sin or the sin of his parents. Jesus corrects it, verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So, Friends, we might think sometimes God's hand is against us. If you're a believer, if you're a child of God, God's hand is not against you. It really isn't. Okay? Um, a parent's hand will never be against their child. Will they discipline them? Yes, but that's not their hand against them. It's actually, if you think about it, they're really, their hand is for them. Okay? Discipline should be a redemptive uh, thing. It should be corrective. It should have a purpose. So God's hand is never against his children. Barrenness is not a curse. Um, sometimes I feel like we can get into different situations. A low-paying job, that's not a curse. Barely scraping by, that's not a curse. That's not God being against you. Having um, a stinky job, that's not a curse. That's not God being against you. Um, part of it is we live in a fallen world. We feel the effects of sin in our lives, okay? Um, just by waking up sometimes. We get, we get older, we get slower, we have creaks, we have cricks, we have all sorts of things going on. But God uses this fallen world 
to make us into the people of God that he wants us to be. So we're going to have heartache, we're going to have hurt, we're going to have disappointment, we're going to have failure. But he uses all that to continue his work for molding and shaping his bride, us, to be what he wants us to be. So we need to trust, that's back to my second point, we need to trust the Lord in all his dealings with us. So we read verse 7, where it says that they didn't have children. We're like, oh, okay, that's not a big deal. There's no children yet, right? But then it continues, it continues going on, right? Look back at verse 7. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Okay, so she hadn't had children yet. Looked like she couldn't. And then we find out, oh, both are advanced in years. Okay, so the deck is kind of stacked against them. That's going to be a challenge. But here's the thing. When God wants to do something, nothing's going to stop him. Okay? When God wants to do something, nothing is going to stop him. Now, <clears throat> there's been other Old Testament childless couples that God has worked with, right? Probably the, mo- the one that maybe comes to mind uh, most, most quickly is Sarah and Abraham. Right? But there was also, and we talked about this actually just like a month or so ago, there was Hannah and Elkanah, right? She ends up getting pregnant, giving birth to Samuel. There was Jacob and Rachel. There's even Manoah and his wife. You can read in Judges later about that similar situation. Um, so we're, when we're reading, and if we have our, our biblical knowledge kind of in where it needs to be, like Luke's readers would, they would have realized that God had addressed barrenness before in the past, and it looked like he was about to do something here. It also piqued the reader's interest and remind them of what God had done in these other situations. And here God, again, was going to intervene and do something special. So God is going to take this issue, this heartache issue of childlessness, he's going to do something. Friends, God is always working in the lives of his saints. If you are a saint, if you're a true believer, if you're one of his, if you are a child of God, he's always working in your life. Now, you might not think it, you might not feel it, you might not even see it. All right, but that's, that's, not, that's not on God, that's on you. Because God is always working in the lives of his saints. If you're one of his saints, he's always working in your life. Now, it says they were righteous, uh, both righteous before God. Can I just make a side note about marriage for a second? Um, one, blessed is the marriage where both spouses walk righteously before God. And that is a beautiful thing. That's our marriages should represent Christ in the church. That's what Ephesians 5 talks about. Okay, we are a walking picture of the gospel of Christ and his bride. Um, one or two things that I, happens in a marriage. Okay? Either one spouse pulls the other one up or one spouse pulls the other one down. All right? Now, it's supposed to be an iron sharpened iron thing. That should be happening. But <clears throat> I've seen marriages where the one spouse is walking real strong and the other and, and kind of can pull the spouse the other spouse up. Now, I'm not saying that is ent- entirely possible every single time, but it can be a challenge that the one spouse is an encourager to the other one struggling. But I've also seen where the one struggling 
drags the one that's doing good down. Let me just encourage you, be the spouse that is trying to pull the other spouse up to where you're at if you think you're walking righteously before the Lord. Okay, don't stoop down to what they're doing. Uh, wherever they're at, at some point you've got to answer before the Lord for yourself. So um, don't stoop down to what they're doing. Uh, because sometimes in marriage, I know none of you ever have been in this situation, and of course I never have either, but it's like, well, I'll be nice if they're nice. Okay? I know you've never struggled with that. Um, but that's not the right attitude. Right, you've got to be nice regardless. And there ain't no clause in the Bible about being nice when you're treated nice. In fact, it really almost says the opposite. You've got to be nice regardless of how you're treated. Remember it says, love your enemies. All right? I know at times you can feel like your spouse is your enemy. Love your enemies. If we're, if we're commanded to love our enemies, like how much more so our spouse, who we've covenanted before God to be faithful, to be one with. All right? So you need to be a righteous spouse, regardless of how your husband or wife acts, you need to be a righteous spouse. You need to act in righteousness. You need to walk in righteousness. You need to live in righteousness. You need to speak in righteousness. You need to think in righteousness. So <clears throat> with that in mind, um, here Zechariah is in the temple. Um, look at what verse 13 says. It says, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit to you something. Um, I, when, I've, when I've read this in the past, I actually thought he was, um, he was praying for his wife and himself to have a baby. I actually don't think that's, that's accurate. Um, think about it just for a moment. One, they're way past the age of childbearing. Okay, so he's he's probably I mean he's righteous and he's blameless. It says so he's probably understood that the Lord is sovereign and has just decided in his own sovereignty to not bless them with children, and he's come to a place of accepting that. Two, um, he's been chosen as the priest to represent the people of Israel before God at this time. Remember, it's like a once in a lifetime opportunity. So he's representing the people, one, just as the priest in general, but now specifically at this time, he's offering up the incense and he's supposed to be praying. He's representing all those people outside who are praying, but also the entire nation. I mean, I really don't think this righteous, blameless man at that point as he's representing the people is offering up personal prayers for himself. I could be wrong, but I really believe he's acting in his priestly role as he should be. And he is praying for a deliverer for his people. He's praying for the Savior to be sent. He's interceding and asking for mercy. And the angel appears and says, guess what? I've heard your prayer. And I'm going to answer that prayer. And I'm going to answer it like directly starting by using you to do it. So a few key things here. One, I think we can learn something. We need to wisely exercise the authority God has given us. Wisely exercise the authority. Remember, the different places of authority that God has given you, you've got to pray accordingly. 
And he's representing the people, so that's what he's doing. He's praying for the people. Um, moms, God's giving you charge over your children to train, to nurture, protect. Like, pray for your children. Like, pray for your children. Speak into their lives. Use your influence while you have that opportunity. The prayer of a godly mom is a dangerous weapon in the spiritual realm. Dads, you know, you're covenant leaders over your home. You need to exercise that leadership via prayer. All right, look, I mean, think of, think of Job for a second. Look at Job chapter 1. Starts in verse 4, chapter 1. Job's sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with him. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. What's Job doing? He's interceding on his children's behalf. Moms, dads, you should be interceding. Doesn't matter how old or young your kids are, interceding on their behalf. Dads, you're the covenant leaders. You need to be exercising and showing this. You need to be leading your wife in prayer in this manner. Exercise that leadership wisely. Employee, some of you here are in some type of position of authority at your work. God's blessed you to have a position of authority. Use that wisely. Use it to have an influence. Use it to make influence, uh, to use it wisely for influence. Use it as you make decisions. Realize, listen, God's put you in that position. It's kind of like, think, think to uh, you know, Esther, not to advance your own cause, but to advance the cause of the kingdom of God. Right? God, you know, um, you know, we got some very intelligent and smart people in here, but you're not in your position uh, because your resume got you there. I hope you don't think that. You're there because God has appointed you for that position. Okay, Queen Esther, she might have been uh, all beautiful and stuff, but beauty only gets you so far. God appointed her to that position. Right? And if we believe God is sovereign, it's just not like it just you know, throws up like, you know, uh, a handful of a dust and see where it lands and just kind of tries to sort it out or something like that. Now, you're where you're at because God has placed you in that position and he's blessed many, many, many of us in those key positions of authority and influence. He wants you there not to advance your own cause, not to advance your own career, but to make a difference for him. So you've got to use that authority wisely and for his glory. One of those ways is an intercessor. I mean, if you've got a job, you should be praying for your coworkers. You should be praying for those people under you. Just like Job, he interceded for his kids. Listen, are our prayers, sometimes I think our prayers can be too small. Let's pray big. Let's pray big. Let's believe big. I woke up yesterday, um, and uh, my back was killing so bad. It's still hurting, but my back was killing so bad. It hurt in a place that had never hurt. I didn't even know there's so many places a back can hurt. But as you get older, you just realize your back can hurt in all sorts of different places, all right? But I woke up yesterday, 
and my back was killing me, and it was the day to go to pray and go, and I'm like, Lord, I don't even know how I'm going to like even walk to the bathroom, let alone walk around the neighborhood. I was convinced immediately uh, that it was uh, the enemy at work, trying to get me to somehow have an excuse and not go, and I had an amazing excuse because I could hardly walk. <clears throat> I must have spent like 15 or 20 minutes like stretching this thing, uh, stretching out my back. It just about killed me. And I got, finally got up and moving and stretching, and that helped a little bit. Got up here. Um, we had an awesome turnout, by the way. And um, one of the people that went was James Childress. And he comes up here, and, you know, James shows up, and he's, like, limping. And I'm like, what is wrong, James? And he's like, man, I messed up my, my toe this morning. It is all nasty looking, but I, I felt like the Lord wanted me here, and I'm here to go. So uh, James and I got the opportunity to go out. We had different groups going out in different places, and, um, <clears throat> and, 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 and we went. We prayed, and we went. We hit a total yesterday. It was an awesome day. It was cold, but actually, again, as long as you're kind of above 25 or 30, once you start walking, if you got the right layers on, you actually can stay pretty warm. Um, 365 houses we, we hit yesterday. It was awesome. Um, I know Dan... Benson got to talk to, I think, five people. We got to talk to a couple. The Gibsons got to talk to someone. I think the Snyders did as well. Um, all the hours added up so far from the last few weeks, we've, we've, we've done a total of 48 hours. 48 hours of praying, friends. 48 hours of outreach. Like, that is awesome. So God, God is doing some stuff, but let, let's pray Big, let's believe big, and let's not let circumstances kind of dictate how we're going to live our lives. Sometimes we've got to do what God calls us to do in spite of the circumstances. My circumstances yesterday, so just stay at home. You've, you know, you've you, you got a good excuse. You're in a lot of pain. Uh, James' circumstances, same thing, right? <clears throat> Sometimes you have to decide if you're going to let those things dictate how you live your life. You just got to do that. I felt strongly. It was an attack from the enemy. I'm like, I'm just going to show up there and somehow make it through however many houses I can possibly walk to. God was very gracious. Lastly, I want to encourage you with something. Just like we've been talking about the story that we see in the scriptures that begins all the way back in Genesis, I want to encourage you to find yourself in God's story. Where are you at in God's story? Because this wasn't Zechariah. In Elizabeth's story, it was God's story. And the amazing thing is that God still chooses us today to be a part of his story. So what do we see about God in this passage? Where where do we see him working? We see that circumstances don't limit God. All right? Old couple, no kids, barren. That doesn't stop God. Never has. Actually, I want you to see this. We'll get to it probably next week or the week after, but look what it says in Luke chapter 1. Verse 37. Nothing will be impossible with God. All right? All you can memorize that just like in five seconds. Nothing will be impossible with God. You got a verse memorized. Congratulations. Luke one thirty seven. you need to memorize that, you need to tell yourself that. You need to remind yourself of that. Nothing will be impossible with God. 
Don't let circumstances limit what God wants to do with you. So God's at work. He's orchestrating this whole thing. Listen, God's setting the stage in your life, and he's orchestrating things. You've got to remember God's in control. Then you've got to trust him as he's working it out. Where did your story begin? Because you're part of a bigger story. There might be, whatever, 50 individuals here, but that's not with 50 individual stories. That's not where your initial focus should be. There's one overarching story. And if you start thinking your story comes first, you mess up the real story. All right? God's story. <clears throat> so we got to remember, Jesus is coming into this earth. John is sent really as the forerunner. We'll talk a little bit about that next week to prepare the way. But all along, God has been working. And I want to encourage each one of us, <clears throat> you know, ask ourselves, where's God working in our life? Because he's working. He's working. And some of you, he's like, you know, chiseling away, chiseling away. Some of you, he's like hammering away, all right? He's got a lot of work to do. <clears throat> but he's working. And are you going to trust him to do that work? Are you going to let circumstances dictate how you serve the Lord? Are you going to say, God, what do you want me to do? I'm going to do it. Whatever obstacles there are, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to overcome them. This is an opportunity as we look through uh, Luke chapter 1 and see how God unfolds his redemptive story to also see what is our role in God's redemptive story. Because the story doesn't just end at the end of the Gospels or the end of the Epistles or the end of Revelation, like the story's going on today. And we get a privilege to be a part of that story. Okay? One of the ways we do that is through what we've been talking about, through being a witness, through praying and going. One of the things that we're going to start to talk about is discipleship and what does that look like. Right? That, that's us growing in our faith. That's us letting God come in through his Spirit to give us the fruit of the Spirit to conform us to the image of his Son, Jesus. Those things glorify the Lord. Amen? So we've got we to remember who is in control of the Lord. We've got to trust him every step of the way. And we have to be willing to see ourselves in God's story. You hearing me? You guys hearing me? All right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we're privileged to be a part of your story. We thank you, God, that you've been gracious to bring in different challenges to our life, things that we haven't liked, things that maybe we still don't like, God, but you're using them for your glory. You're using them sovereignly. Lord, help us to trust Help us to trust you. Remind us that you are good, Lord, that you give good gifts to your children, that you walk with us every step of the way, that you will be with us moment by moment. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in our midst. That we wouldn't let circumstances dictate how we serve you, but we would let you dictate how we serve you. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that we can celebrate 
this Christmas season, Lord. Use us, Lord, in our neighbors' lives, in our families' lives, in our friends' lives, to further your gospel, to be beacons of light. Continue your work in us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.